Well, we come to uh, a really confronting passage uh, towards the end of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth it speaks about our world and about our lives and about you. We pray, please, that we'll be wise, that we'll be challenged, that we will see what is happening in the present time, but also what you are doing in every age and where to find our security. Help us to find it in you. Amen. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great, O city of power, in just one hour your doom has come. Are we facing the end of civilization as we know it? It's astonishing in how short a period of time empires, economies and societies can collapse. Rome ruled the world for 400 or so years and then bang, it was gone almost overnight. The British Empire stretched across the globe and now it's just a shadow of its former glory. Hitler conquered Europe in about three years. And though he thought he was setting up an empire that would last for a thousand years, well, it was gone in just a couple. It all collapsed. And we're getting a little bit of a glimpse of that kind of thing at the present time. A month ago, hardly any of us had heard of coronavirus or COVID-19. A month ago, there was no problem getting bread or pasta or rice or taco shells or toilet paper. Nor was there any problem getting baked beans. Uh, Good luck to those who've been hoarding them the last week without also having hoarded the toilet paper previously. (laughs) A month ago, people weren't pushing in lines and yelling at each other in supermarket queues or punching each other at Costco. A month ago, the economy hadn't tanked as people hadn't then gone into a stock-selling frenzy in their panic. A month ago, OPEC ruled the world. A month ago, there was no question about church services running or restaurants being opened or football matches being kicked off. A lot can change very quickly and devastation can rain down on even the most powerful, the most secure, the most well-loved and the most well-guarded and protected. And so the question we're facing is where do you find your security? Where are your hopes placed? Are you afraid at this time? And if so, why? These are the questions being raised right now around about us. But they're also the very questions that our passage today in Revelation chapters 17 to 19, we're doing three chapters, forces us to confront and answer for ourselves. For those who've only just joined us for today uh, and those online who may just be tuning in for the first time, we've been working at church through this tremendous letter of the book of Revelation, a letter sent from Jesus Christ to every church in every age until he comes again as it faces its perennial problems of arrogance, of false teaching, of idolatry, persecution, issues of immorality and distraction and comfort. And what Jesus is doing in the book of Revelation is is drawing back the curtains of reality to show us the spiritual realities behind uh, what we see and experience, why they are like they are and what God is doing. Show us the eternal realities showing them to us so that we'll hang on, so that we will keep going with Jesus, so that we'll walk closely with God. Now, someone has commented during the week that our sermon series uh, this year has been strangely prophetic. (laughs) 
And they hope that next year we will do the whole year on Genesis 1 and 2 and the genealogies of the Bible. <laughs> Last week, we saw the bowls of God's wrath being poured out. As the seventh bowl came, it was the end. It is done, came the voice, said the angel. And the image was of a great city being destroyed by a great storm and an earthquake so that it was no more. A great city that was named Babylon the Great. Violently, suddenly, decisively thrown down, never to recover. Well, in chapters 17 to 19, we get a really close-up view of this destruction. Here is the end of Babylon the Great, who's shown to us in described for us in a very particularly graphic way in verses uh, 1 onwards in chapter 17 of Revelation. Have a look. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, she's not the first woman who's mentioned in Revelation. Back in chapter 12, there was an image of a godly woman who was being attacked by Satan himself. But in the end, she was protected and loved by God. She was rescued by the Savior, who was her son, a woman who was faithful to God. Well, here's the other woman. Here's the alternative. This woman's pictured as a great prostitute. Uh, the, the other woman... A harlot, the one you forsake your promises of love and faithfulness for and betray yourself with. She's the seductress who, who offers great delights and tantalizing experiences, but for her delight she demands a great payment, one that people willingly line up to pay for, for yearning for what she has to offer people from the greatest to the smallest. They're yearning for something better, something different, something more exciting, something you don't think you're going to get back home. But as so many other times in the book of Revelation, John hears one thing, but then turns to look at what's being described by a voice or an angel, and it's never quite what he's expecting to see. You know, he heard, Behold, the Lion of Judah, he turned and saw a dead lamb on the throne of God. Well, it looked as though it had been slain. You know, he's heard this has happened many times. What happens now? He hears, come see the great prostitute, and he turns around. The angel, verse 3, carried me away in the spirit into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. I've never seen a prostitute in the street. <laughs> looking like that. I'm not sure that's what people are signing up for. But we've had that same description of a beast before. Back in chapter 13, there was a beast, the first beast that came out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns and was covered in blasphemous names. And if you were here at the time, you might recall that David suggested that that beast was a picture of government in opposition to God and his people. Government which uses its coercive powers of, of jail and purchasing power and violence to oppose and control Christianity. Well, here's this beast again. 
But this time there's a woman on its back and this woman is dressed to the nines as the description goes on. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, really rich stuff. And she was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. How beautiful, how rich, how appealing she is. Until you notice what she's holding in her hand. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. It's a bizarre mix of glorious and disgusting, attractive but vile. Who is this woman? Well, she's named for us the title written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes and of the Abominations of the Earth. Now, if we've got our Bible reading glasses on, that name, Babylon the Great, should be quite familiar. Anyone think where Babylon might be first mentioned in the Bible? I won't take it from the live stream. I'll take it from uh, the people here. Anyone, where where does Babylon first appear in the Bible? The the Israelites were certainly exiled there, but it comes up before that even. It's first mentioned in Genesis Chapter 11, in the Tower of Babel. Babel is another word for Babylon. You look at the footnote in your Genesis 11 and there it says, or alternatively, Babylon. Now remember what happened at the Tower of Babel. Humanity gathered together and thought to make a name for itself. A name so great that even they would even take God himself on, that even God would be impressed. And so they decided to build a tower so tall that it would reach right up into heaven itself. And so off they went to build this great monument to themselves so that even God would have to bow down in respect before them. But remember what happened. God saw their evil and threw the whole thing down. Boom, in an instant, overthrown. Humanity's great achievement in one moment, destroyed. But that's not the last we hear of Babylon, as uh, Kathy's mentioned. Where else is it? Is it in the Bible? Well, it's the great empire that rose, the empire that destroyed Israel, built on the ruins of the tower in the same place in the plains of Shinar. Many years later, they arose, and it was an empire greater than any before. It overthrew all of its enemies, and it would claim the world as its own, even taking Israel, God's nation, into captivity as its slaves. Now, they were glorious. They built their hanging gardens. They were impressive. They were world conquerors. Everyone bowed down to them. And what happened tonight to them? Well, the writing was on the wall, literally. One night, King Belshazzar of Babylon was in his palace throwing a great party for all the dignitaries, a good old booze-up shindig, when all of a sudden a disembodied hand wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Numbered, weighed, divided. And that very night, the Persians attacked, the city was taken, the king was murdered, and Babylon fell. In just a couple of hours, it was gone. Babylon is a name that's synonymous with the great coming together of man in defiance of God. It's a name that represents control and power and conquest. But strong as it seems, as powerful, as invincible as it looks, as impressive as it is, it comes crashing down in an instant. 
But there's one more important part of the description in Revelation 17 verse 6. How does this Babylon treat God's people? How does it deal with Christians? We'll see it there. I saw a woman, the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. It's a pretty gruesome image, isn't it? She is drunk on the blood of Christians. In her hatred and defiance of God, she has vented her rage on his people. She can't get to God himself, but she can certainly take it out on those who are his. Now, it's an astonishing sight. That's the description. And John himself stared at her, this image, in astonishment. He's taken, I guess, by her beauty. He's taken by her power. He's taken by the horror of it all. Who can resist her charms? Who can defy her control? But the question we all want to know is, who is she? What is God talking about? Who is this Babylon woman, the great prostitute? Is it something or someone from times past? Is it, is it an empire here today? Is it China? Is it the US? Is it the UN? Or, or is it something future? Uh, well, in the second half of chapter 7, the angel goes on to give a whole bunch of identifying marks as to who this woman and the beast she rides are. And I won't read it out, but in summary, the, the, the heads and the horns all represent kings. Uh, but he says the, the, the heads all represent seven hills on which the woman sits as well. So it's a place, but it's rulers. And the waters on which the beast floats are peoples, multitudes, nations and language who all live in submission to the woman. And as it turns out, they're all committing adultery with her, but they also hate her in their hearts. And eventually they turn on her and destroy her. And Christian people all down through the ages have tried to work out which empire, which age, which movement, what these identifying marks might all point to. They point to the, to the seven hills of Rome. In ancient literature, Rome was described as the city built on seven hills. And they say, well, aha, this is obviously code talking about the Roman Empire. John is seeing its downfall. And they've got a point. Indeed, they ruled the world and nations under them loved them and hated them at the same time and eventually rose up against them. But then others in history, Christian history, have said, no, it's talking about the papacy. The Pope is the great harlot. That was the view of the 1500s because the Pope controlled the governments of Europe and opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others have said it was the USSR, that superpower which was set up as an expression of the solidarity of the people but banned the church, kicked out God's people, had them arrested and put to death. Others today say it's the UN or the World Council of Churches the time of, of one world government is upon us and will lead us away from God. Now, are any of them right? Well, none of them are, and all of them are. Because here's the thing. Revelation is not describing just one thing. It's all those things, all those empires and more. It is Rome. It is the British Empire. It is Nazi Germany. The prostitute Babylon is equivalent to godless world power, to materialism, to the decadent corruption that goes with it. It is any and every attempt of humanity to recreate Babel or rebuild Babylon of old. It is man set against God. And the reason we're being shown this astonishing image, the real point is not to get us all caught up in the details and, and trying to pin down one particular identity 
But to see the destiny that awaits all these attempts to unite against God. See, what did the angel announce in verse 1? Come back. What is he trying to show John and through him us? He says, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. This is not about who she is, but it's about her downfall. The downfall, which we saw last week in chapter 16, was described as a storm and an earthquake that smashed the city to smithereens. But in chapter 17, verse 16, it's the rising up of the subject nations to devour the head and kill the prostitute that they hate ruling them. Or in chapter 18 and verse 4, the downfall is described as plagues coming from God. Or in chapter 18, verse 21, a rock is hurled from heaven into the sea and a great wave washes it from the face of the earth. But in every case, the doom which comes, comes suddenly. It comes unexpectedly. It happens decisively. And then it's all over very, very quickly. This thing that looks so powerful, that seemed invincible and glorious, that no one could resist, that everyone was beholden to, it's gone in an instant. Is civilization, as we know it, coming to an end? Well, yes and no. No, because I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But yes, because as we've seen, Revelation's describing what is happening in every age, at every stage. This is for the church in every age. It does kind of describe what's happening now. Is this the end of China? Is it the end of the US? Is it the end of Australian civilization? We know it. Who knows? There's certainly going to be big changes. How do you respond? Well, how do they respond in our passage? Well, there are two very, very different responses that you could make today or that they make here. Two very different reactions. For the vast majority, there is great mourning. What's the constant refrain through Revelation 18, that chapter that was read for us earlier? What keeps getting repeated? Woe. Woe, O great city. And three times, specific groups of people cry out in weeping and mourning. They're really upset by what they're seeing happening in Babylon's destruction. The first group, verse 9, chapter 18. When the kings of the earth had committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. Why are the kings and rulers so upset? Because they've lost their chance to get their leg over. Their affair has come to an end. And they're also terrified. Terrified not... For her, but for themselves, because if it can happen to her, what's to stop it happening to us? But there's a second group in mourning in verse 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. And there's a great list of the wares they sell until you get to verse 15. These merchants who sold these things and gain their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, 
Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. They're mourning because they've lost their fortune. They've lost their opportunities. Because they see this wealth disappearing and they're like, ah! And finally in verse 17, every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, they'll stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they'll exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and that with weeping and mourning, they'll cry out, woe, woe to you, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. They're sad because they've lost their livings and they've lost their you know, travel plans. They don't get to see the great delights now and have their experiences. None of them are weeping for Babylon. They don't love her. They don't care about her fortunes or her well-being at all. But her destruction has brought them ruin. It's all completely selfish. It's because they've lost their own opportunities when the city went down. They lost out. And all of them are particularly shocked by the speed with which it happened. None of them were prepared. In one hour this happened, they all cry, Woe, woe, woe to us. That's one reaction. But there's a very different reaction happening elsewhere. For in heaven there are cries not of mourning, but instead there are shouts of joy. There are people singing the praises of God for his judgments. And so chapter 19 and verse 1, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. Alleluia! That's a Hebrew word meaning praise the Lord. In fact, this is the only chapter of the New Testament the word turns up and it's all over the place. Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For just and true his judgments, he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! For our Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen, which stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Can you imagine being there in that crowd? In that vast multitude hearing the roar of the praising of God, the, the breaking forth of joyful song. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why are they so happy? Why are they shouting and singing such great joy to God? Well, they praise him for his salvation. They praise him for his power. They praise him for his glory. And they praise him for his judgments. For finally bringing this great prostitute Babylon to an end. That wicked city that has spilt the blood of Christians and oppressed the name of Jesus and sought to destroy it and stand in defiance of God. She was drunk on the blood of the saints, but she's finally been brought to justice. But they also praise him because in the destruction of the great prostitute has come the great wedding of the lamb. And the bride is now ready. She is beautifully dressed in her gown and ready to walk down the aisle. I have done many, many weddings down through the years. And something I've noticed about brides is that they do seem to put quite a lot of effort into getting dressed. <laughs> They're up at four in the morning having their hair done, the lashes and the makeup. And, you know, they've, they've spent countless days with their bridesmaids looking at every opportunity in the shops. They've gone to the wedding fairs. You know, some of them have thought, oh, I'll wear mum's one, you know, with the, the big puffy sleeves. Or some of them have gone for sleek and, you know, but they all put a lot of effort into getting dressed and getting ready. And the church here is the bride of Christ. And we've spent all these years getting ready. Unlike Babylon, that's totally caught by surprise in the judgment. The bride is ready and prepared for her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're seeing is a stark contrast between the bride who is dressed in fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints, and this wicked, awful, scarlet woman who's filled with abominations. Two women who could not be more different from each other. One of them holy, lovely, faithful, beautiful. The other one, well, dressed to the nines, but gaudy. Violent, wicked and horrible. What is the great challenge that God is giving us in showing us these things? In showing us these two women side by side. What is he calling us to? What is he calling us to do and to be? Well, his call echoes right through these pages. And we're to hear his voice and heed the calls. 17 verse 7, do not be astonished when you see this woman, the great prostitute. Don't be overawed by the power and by the seductions of the world as our world is overawed by it and is in love with it. Hear his voice, heed his call. Or 17 verse 9, be wise. As you see the great empires of the world, see them for what they really are. You've got to see past the allure and the makeup and the drawer of the fancy clothing and the low-cut tops and the, the abominations that are there in the blood. That's what you've got to see instead, the abominations. Hear his voice. Heed his call. Or 18 verse 4. Come out of her, my people, and be separate, 
so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. We're to be totally different to the world, not in love and seduced away from God. Hear his voice, heed his call. Or 18 verse 20, rejoice over her destruction. Do not be amongst those who mourn, but be amongst those who rejoice. Because God is just and God is glorious. Or 19 and verse 7, be dressed for the wedding of the Lamb. Be dressed in the righteous deeds that are befitting of God's people. These are the very opposite things to the way our world operates. They're unnatural. What are our neighbours doing right now? They're hoarding. They're fighting. They're panicking. They're distressed. They're mourning. Because they fear the great collapse is going to affect them. They are self-focused. We are to be different from that. Filled with compassion, filled with kindness, filled with uh, patience and gentleness. The things that flow out of being united to Christ, the things that he is towards us in his sacrifice. Loving rather than hoarding. Filled with the things of God, living out of love because he first loved us. Be different. Yes, you'll stand out like a sore thumb. But you know what? You standing out like that might be just the very thing they need to understand what really matters and what really lasts and what really is so very important. Not self-protection or self-gratification, but honouring the great and mighty God who made us and who is calling us home, calling us to come to the great wedding feast not as guests watching on, like you might get the invitation, not to come even to the reception because you're on the A-list, but to come as part of his bride walking down the aisle. Is civilization as we know it ending? Well, it doesn't really matter if it is or it isn't. The greatest civilization, one that is greater than any that man has known, is still to come. And we're being invited to be part of it. Amen. Father, these are stirring, challenging, confronting and joyful words. Stirring and confronting because it's describing our world. And the way people are panicking and mourning and in distress. Help us not to be like that. Help us to put on the clothing of Christ, to be different, to come out and be separate. Help us to heed your call, to hear your voice. And we pray that we might glorify you. And we pray that as we stand out, many more might come into your glorious kingdom and come to experience the joy of being forgiven, the joy of life, the joy of knowing hope, the joy of being part of your bride your church. Father, we look forward to the day when all this comes in finality and completion and we pray that we might stand firm in our face and not be seduced away by the temptations and seductions of this world. Help us not to be astonished 
and to stand in awe of the things that are opposed to you, but help us to rejoice in you and love you all the more as we see the day approaching. Amen.